You are listening to a Laison Lumineur podcast. Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Laison Lumineur. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This occasional series records our lectures and gallery talks, insights from new publications, and interviews with collectors and scholars. Our aim is to offer an ever-wider public tools for learning about the diversity of our activities and the breadth of our interests. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello, this is Sandra, and I'm in Chicago today talking with Diana Skarisbrick in London. Diana, hello. Hello. I'm sorry we can't be doing this in London one Sunday afternoon on your couch in your living room. That would be preferable, but as things are, we're separated and we're doing this virtually. No one could, no one could possibly work on or collect jewelry without knowing who Diana Skarisbrick is. She is certainly the most famous name in the history of jewelry that there is. And if you put her name into Google, you are overwhelmed by an entire page of little icons of her many, many books. So it's so generous of you to join us today. I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to do this. I have a series of questions for you. So let's get started. Great. Okay, Diana. Thank you for those very kind words, Sandra. Oh, you're I'm very touched. You're welcome. You know, I don't even know, although I've known you for quite a while, how you got started as a jewelry historian. I don't know if you trained, if you studied it. I know you were at Oxford, but when did this career actually begin for you and how? Well, Sandra, I can tell you my career would give hope to everybody who'd like to do something, find a purpose in their lives. Because it wasn't until I was 50 years old, that's 40 years ago, that I discovered the joys and the pleasures of researching and understanding jewellery. And I'll tell you how it happened. I had a husband, Peter, who liked buying rings. And I was always wearing these rings. And one day, one of our friends who worked at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford said, Diana, you like rings. We've got a collection at Oxford that nobody knows anything about. It's never been catalogued. Why don't you come and see if you can do it for us? That's well, great. I was very nervous. I was very nervous. Uh-huh. But I went to Oxford in 1975, and I saw these rings, which came from two great collections. And what was so exciting, because I like documents, in the library, they'd got the correspondence between these two ring collectors, Arthur Evans and C.D. Fortnum, the famous grocery firm. That's where his money Right, Fortnum and Mason. And discussing the two of them in their letters, because they, well, they didn't use the telephone, in the 19th century, discussing their latest acquisitions. Hmm. So I had the opinion of the collectors, as well as these really lovely rings, to do something about. And had you, like, did you, did you just start, like, reading about rings then? Or, 
I mean, because... No, no, of course, I had to start from scratch. But you see, I always believe that the best way to learn about something is to be given a job and to set about learning how to do it. And that's what I did with rings. Somehow, I managed to grasp the significance of each ring and get the story attached to each. And this ended up with an exhibition in the catalogue. And because of that, my beloved friends, S.J. Phillips, had a collection in 1977 that had to be catalogued. They asked, because they knew I'd done this work for the Ashmolean and put on this exhibition, they asked me to come and help with the, not the ancient things, that was Professor John Boardman's province. That's how he and I became friends. But I did the later ones, Renaissance, 17th century. Yes. And that's uh, how I got to know S.J. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you about your relationship with the Nortons, the owners, of course, of the illustrious firm S.J. Phillips in London. Because I know you've always said to me uh, how important they have been to your formation. So they knew about you from the Ashmolean exhibit. Well, no, because, to be honest, the rings that my friend at the Ashmolean admired so much and that I was always wearing. Of course, my husband had bought them from 1970 when we discovered S.J. Phillips. He had bought them from the Nortons, and that's how I became I see. friend of the Nortons. And I that's see. How they, but it was only when they realized I was a serious person, that uh, not just a, a lucky woman who, whose husband bought her rings, they took a gamble and asked me to do the Harari collection, my half of it, with Professor Boardman. Right. And that was the start of several exhibitions I did for them. And Bond Street Shop, where they've been since 1870, it had the most wonderful atmosphere. And of course, the Nortons gave me access to their stock and their acquisitions. Because before you can learn about anything, you've got to have access to the objects. And they had, as Arthur Grimwage said, the most desirable collection of objects for those with limitless pockets. So, of course, they dealt with all the best collectors and, of course, the best institutions, and their taste is extraordinary. And with that, you get a mixture, not only of taste, but charm and integrity. Right. And that's what makes them a great firm. Yeah, and, and I'm sure you agree because oh, you're a very good customer of theirs. Of course, and friend as well. And, you know, I think one of the things you've told me many, many times is having been able to handle such a variety of objects over what? Now it's, um, you know, 40 or 50 years through the Nortons has really been, uh, it's been exceptional as a means of forming your taste, your knowledge, I mean, everything. I think both of us Sandra, agree. There's nothing, there's nothing like it. And when I go into a museum, even though they're a marvel or an exhibition, the marvelous things are somehow untouchable, enshrined behind glass walls. I really think, wasn't I lucky to learn through handling the things through my friendship with the Nortons? Also, the auction houses. When they have things, you can handle them. And that's where London is very good. When Christie's and Sotheby's were, were flourishing, days when virtually the whole of England was coming up for sale, there were lots of good things that you could discover. Right. 
not only there, but in the antique antique markets like Portobello. Right, right. Well, I think we agree about the sort of special nature of objects. I mean, I'm really, I'm a historian too, as you know, but I'm a dealer really partly because I get to live with, handle, learn from the real objects, not only when they're in glass cases. Exactly. You've had so many projects, books and projects. I mean, you already mentioned your Ashmolean catalog, and you just touched on the Harari catalog, which was so important. But do you have a favorite project, something that, that you know maybe was transformative for you? Well, it was the thrill of being invited to write the history of Chaumet, the famous French jeweler in Place Vendôme, because they had an intact archive dating back to the 1830s, and their previous history is recorded in the Archives Nationale. That was, they date from 1780. So the Chaumet project, what year is that then? Oh, <laughs> about... Let me think, about 1990, um, and we had an exhibition at the Carnival Museum in 1998. But I can tell you, Sandra, one of the greatest thrills of my life was arriving, because I had to go to Paris to do this work, the thrill of walking across Place Vendôme every morning, seeing those wonderful buildings. Right. And to think I was going inside one of them and be able to work from documents not having to guess at anything. Right. And there the information was waiting for me to synthesize somehow into a, into a long story. So that was a hugely enjoyable project. And of course, everybody likes being in Paris, and it was wonderful for me. And I think you're a very fluent French speaker, aren't you, if I remember correctly? Is that from that time, or did you learn French also as a child? Well, no. Well, I was sent, before I went to Oxford, I was sent as an English miss to a French family, and that's the beginning of my love of France and my interest in everything, of French culture, French literature, uh, the French arts, everything. And so you worked and for a French family in Paris? They had a flat in Paris, in the Latin Quarter, the Boulevard Saint-Michel, but also a country house. But you see, I became devoted to them and to France, and my first job when I left Oxford was to work, work as a translator for the French Navy at one of the establishments that you Americans had put up in Europe because of the threat of Russia. It was called SHAFE, Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force. How in interesting. SHAFE, right. And so I had this lovely job in the Chateau of Fontainebleau translating all the French documents into English so that the Americans and the Brits could could understand them. So that's how, uh, so I got very fluent in translation. Huh, how? So that stood me in very good stead uh, when I had to work through all these Chaumet documents from the ledgers. You mentioned Oxford a couple of times. What did you, what did you read at Oxford? Well, I started off making a big mistake. I read um, philosophy, politics, and economics. Hmm. because I thought it was the smart and fashionable thing to do, but a modern thing to do. So right. Of course, I was absolutely hopeless at abstract thought. I couldn't grasp the economics, so I had to give that up after a year, or a year. And then I switched to history, and my special subject was the French Revolution, 
because of my interest in France. I see. How interesting. Yeah, yeah. To go back to your books, um, I'm a, I'm a ring specialist, as you know. And your book with Thames and Hudson on um, rings, jewelry of power, love, is a kind of Bible, not only for me, but for many colleagues, for collectors, clients. It's in at least its second printing. I think it, I've seen an edition in yes, that's Russian. Done quite well. <laughs> yes, that's, that's done quite well. It's being translated into Chinese at the moment. Wow. And I've had to write an introduction, but I'm rather thrilled about that. But in fact, I started writing about rings for Thames and Hudson in a much earlier publication. And I was rather thrilled because the person who recommended me to Thames and Hudson was a rather famous modern jeweler called Gerda Stockinger. And so that was my first ring book, which I did for Thames and Hudson. And about 20 years later, they commissioned this other one, which, as you say, has done rather well. That's interesting. Yeah, the first one has a similar title. Isn't the first one also Jewelry of Power, maybe? I always get them muddled up. I'm afraid I can't come out with it. Okay, yeah, I do too. But I I recognize them in my mind by their covers, which are quite distinct. We're both women in a field which I suppose you could say is dominated by men. Um, Maybe not entirely, or maybe not so much anymore. But so, do you have comments about being a female jewelry historian? I mean, you knew someone, if I remember right, you knew Joan Evans, who was a female historian, also worked on jewelry, also collected jewelry. Did you think being a woman was a help or a hindrance or irrelevant? Was Joan Evans a model? Joan was a very special case because she was born into the antiquarian world. Her father, Sir John Evans, was president of the Society of Antiquaries. Her brother, Arthur Evans, whom we've already talked about right. because he gave his collection to the Ashmolean, he was a world-famous archaeologist. She, as a child, she grew up in a house full of beautiful old things, and they were her toys, really. And she published her first book on English jewellery at the age of 21. Wow. She also had a very substantial private income, so she was able to be totally independent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I was lucky enough, as I came into the jewellery world, as I've mentioned, rather late in life, very much in middle middle age, and a friend introduced me to to Joan in her last years, and I used to visit her every month. And she um, would, would ask me how I was getting on. Right. And I remember once I said, I found the women curators in the institutions terribly unhelpful. And she said, yes, Diana, they don't like the competition. I and see. And I can tell you, I found men, both dealers, owners, and curators, much more helpful than any any of the women. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid that's the truth. Of course, where I was very lucky is I found some of the women owners of this great family, English family collections terribly, terribly helpful. And I'll never forget, because I had a great sort of time working on the collection at Chatsworth, and the Duchess Debo, 
when I thanked her for giving me access to these wonderful things, she said that Diana, Andrew and I consider ourselves so lucky to have to be the custodians of these lovely things. The very least we can do is share them with people like you. And in the museum, I encountered a very dog-in-the-manger attitude, except, of course, of the Ashmolean. Mm-hmm. How interesting, yeah, yeah. And Joan, where was Joan Evans living then? Did you visit her in London? Well, she was living in the country, mm-hmm. and you see, it was rather, she gave, as you know, her collection to the V&A, her collection of jewelry to the V&A. Right. And, really, and she was incredibly generous to any friend who was in trouble. And when she heard someone was in trouble, she'd immediately write the biggest check that she could, that she could to help that person. I know that in which several people have told me have told me about her incredible generosity, giving this fabulous collection to the V&A because of her friendship with Charles Oman, the curator, whom she's right. known, of course, since he was a child, because the families were very friendly. And it meant that in her old age, she wasn't terribly comfortable. She didn't have a carer, for instance. She had a rather bedraggled housekeeper. Hmm. She didn't live in the comfortable circumstances that she should have, given, you know, given that she had taken her. And, and given that she had private means, too. Exactly. But you see, her generosity, and then, of course, her, the collection that she, put, that she inherited and, uh, and also acquired. By the way, she was a very good customer of S.J. Phillips. Also. Very well, keen on that. Wonderful. Some of her best things with their discoveries. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, mentioning SJ again brings me um, to you as a collector. Now, I, I might, may not have ever known that Peter gave you rings, and that's really the beginning of your collection, but, of course, you've continued as a collector. And, you know, I wondered what the reason is behind that, a love of beautiful things. Well, dear, I can't pose as an authority unless I've had the experience of possessing these things. And for many years, I was able to lead the kind of life, attending occasions where the women really looked their best, that is, with nice clothes and proper jewelry. And of course, it was always a pleasure for me to be able to wear something suitable for the occasion that had some age to it. Right, and yeah. So that, that was, it was really the thrill of possessing something rare and something that I thought beautiful. Right, and something that in the past was worn too. So, in a way... Exactly, he, exactly. And of course, possessing it, I had to discover more about it. So it was a learning thing as well, you see. Right, collecting them gave you the opportunity to study them and, of course... Exactly. Um, of course, being... Instead um, of having just to look at it through a glass case, you know, as we've already covered. Right, you know, exactly, yeah, is, yeah. You know, being a historian of the subject. Mm-hmm. Which it has to be because it's a, a security issue. That's perfectly understandable. For sure, but um, I think the special opportunities you've had of being able to handle material are, well, it makes you, I mean, that's what curators have too, of course. They are able to handle the material in their collections, but we as the public, um, only in special circumstances do we have those opportunities. Exactly. Uh, 
And of course, having a, a shop like Estes, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And to be, you know, having everything there so accessible to me, I can tell you, one of the salesmen said to me many years ago, Diana, you wouldn't have gotten nearly so far if the Nortons hadn't taken you to their hearts. Well, how nice of them. I mean, it's so true. Wasn't that a lovely thing to say? Well, I'm sure it's reciprocal. I mean, they. I'm sure they're very honored also by your friendship and loyalty. We do get on, and it's since 1970, Sandra. That's a long time. It is a really long time. And many books later, you still going strong. There. Well, you mentioned a kind of. Uh, a landmark book already that I wanted to come back to, and that was the Harari collection. Um, That started your relationship with Boardman as well for the um, ancient things, but it's, do you think it's one of the first catalogs where the kind of sort of detail in the entries really set a new um set a new bar for future cataloging of rings i don't know that's my impression but i don't know if that's true my dear you're absolutely true absolutely right there was nothing like that beforehand the catalogs of the auction sales were totally the descriptions were totally minimal there wasn't any proper description and commentary united together uh, about either jewelry or rings that I can think of. Right, right. About, right, both the language of the description, do, combining the language of the description, the documentation, the stones, the gold, those descriptions really I stand... I learned so much from doing it, Sandra. Yeah. I learned so much from doing it. Well, of course, I mean, every dealer's dream is to keep finding Harari rings and Giyu rings. Most of them are um, now in collections and don't come on the market. But we all exactly. go back to and the book. He bought, the, Ralph Harari bought from very good collections, like Giyu, you see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right, right. So they got a good provenance. Yeah. I Do mean, they were very good things. And, you know, I remember when we had the exhibition, it was so unusual that people queued outside the shop in Bond Street all night to be first thing in, in the morning to get first choice. I know this is a kind of, yes, this is a story that I've been told by a number of people who were among those standing in line. That's right. Um, I was That's right. I was already a historian, but I was a professor. I wasn't a dealer at all at the time. So this is before my active time in this um, field. But it's got a kind of mythology to it. Like I know someone who even stood in line who even paid someone to hold his place in line so he could go home and sleep for a few hours. It's extraordinary. I mean, but it's kind of a great marketing tool isn't it also though kind of you know what auctions do there's a moment when you can buy it and you can't buy it before and you typically can't buy it after yes this was their chance you see and they weren't going to miss out on it and ralph harari was he still living did you know ralph harari then too no he had died and so had his wife who was a rather wonderful woman they had a son I think he was called Michael Harari, who had had a terrible accident um, on a railway train. Hmm. And he needed the money. He needed to sell the collection 
because he needed the money to pay for his care. I see. And so that's why, I don't know why Sotheby's didn't want to take it on, Christie's didn't want to take it on, I suppose because they realized that these things were rather esoteric and unusual, and um, they weren't terribly valuable in terms of money. Michael Harari offered the collection to SGA, and they, they agreed to take it on. And that's how I met John Boardman, and that's how I learned to do these kind of scripted catalogues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was um, John Boardman then uh, one of the people who um, you would say was, you know, an important, shall we say, influence oh, on you? Already, he, yes, he'd already got his Oxford professorship, you see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And because, um, I mean, he was such a help to me because... I always jumped to conclusions, you know, with enthusiasm and so on. And he'd look at me very quizzically after I came up with one of these ridiculous opinions and said, really, Diana? Really? Are you sure? <laughs> and of course, then I'd have to think again. But um, uh, we've been friends ever since. He's the same age as me. And he still works at the Beasley Archive in Oxford. Um, I mean, he's, he's, he's been a marvellous friend to me. And, of course, his books are you know, really, as you say, they're Bibles for people who collect ancient cameos. And you still work um, out of your house. I mean, one of the things I miss about having to do this um, conversation by telephone is not being in front of your coffee table where every recent book that has come out and that is related to things you're working on is sitting on your table. And we can talk about those, too. But well, my dear, you can't, do the, you can't write about the things unless you've got the books. And, of course, one of the wonderful things about London is that when the books are unattainable, there are libraries to which one ha- private people have access. There's the London Library, there's the Library of the Society of Antiquities, there's the Warburg Institute. All those three are very accessible. Right. And it, at the same time, it's lovely to have one's own books and one makes the most wonderful discoveries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, speaking of um, the books on your coffee table and your projects now, I mean, do you have, I know you have many projects because we talk um, quite often, but um, do you have a project that either right now or a future project that is especially intriguing you? Like you can't wait to put everything else down and just do that. Well, you and I have a mutual friend called Kazumi Arakawa in Tokyo. And he and I have been together for the last 25 years. And during that time, some of the most marvelous jewels that have come up for sale have passed through his hands. And he has asked me to write an anthology of all these objects that have passed through his hands. Wonderful cameos, some very beautiful things going right back to the ancient Greeks and up up virtually until the end of... World War II. And an anthology? So like a history of jewelry based on... Well, what he... Yes, exactly. It does cover. It shows how the things that he has bought and sold over the last 25 years do in fact constitute a history of jewelry Mm. over this long period from the ancient Greeks until modern times. Mm. 
25 years. I didn't realize. Not part of the Japanese tradition. So he was really giving the cultural life of Tokyo something new to think about. Right, right. And he, of course, has put on some excellent exhibitions of jewelry and cameos. And I've had the pleasure of going out to Tokyo and um, putting them on for him. Yeah, I mean, at Japan, it's true, Japan has become quite significant in jewelry and perhaps largely thanks to him. But you also mentioned Definitely. that you also mentioned that your book was being translated into Chinese. Is the Chinese world now also important for in your opinion for the history of jewelry? Well, I've just I've also this year I've written a catalog of the jewelry collection of a very wonderful woman who has made a fortune out of selling Ming furniture to Europeans. And she has got great taste in jewellery and she commissioned a catalogue from me, hmm. which has been published by Shanghai Fine Art Publishers. Interesting. And that's, due out in, that's due out in August. And the lady who's translating the Tenzin Hudson Ring book, she told me that she's founded a circle for jewelry, Western jewellery lovers in China, mainland mm. China, and she's already got 50,000 subscribers to this circle. Wow. So, so she thinks it's got a future. Future collectors there. Um, that's, exactly. that's great. Diana, I know you love literature too. Um, and one of the things I enjoy about uh, many of your writings is how much you're able to interweave historical literature, theater, drama, plays, etc., into your or the story that you tell. But I know you like just reading in general, so I thought I might end by asking, um, what are you reading now? Uh, is there a book that... Well, I'm reading the memoirs of a French lady, the Duchesse de Maillet, from 1832 to 1852. And it's very interesting, her comments on all the great personalities at that time, particularly in politics. She had a very good mind. But you see, I'm lucky in that I can read French so easily because in my experience, French memoirs and French literature go into far more detail, particularly about costume and jewellery. The British literature, of course, I couldn't live without Shakespeare and Lord Byron. But the material for me that I've found relates to my interest in jewellery comes from Belzac's novels. Marcel Proust is simply fantastic. I've written about the connection between Marcel Proust and Joseph Chomet, for example. That's I see. Oh. Yes. I mean, the French literature in every aspect of it is an absolute mine. I mean, Colette, for instance, her novel, Shelley, they talk, Shelley, they talk about um, jewellery, the old aunt, uh, with, with the young, handsome nephew. They talk about jewellery. And it's just so interesting what she says about pearls. The only stones, that, the only sapphires worth having are from Kashmir. She was advised by Louis Cartier. Really? So now, huh. as well. Mm. I've read all the Colette novels long ago. I don't remember any of the jewelry parts, so I'm going to have to go back and reread them. Well, you love it, and she writes very clearly. 
Okay, well, I'm ever so grateful to you for joining me today and sharing your history as a, as a researcher, the people who have meant a lot to you, and, um, and what you're doing now. My dear Sandra, you've given me a great deal of encouragement with your publications in your exhibitions. You've done more than anybody I know to promote interesting rings by those stands that you take at fairs and people who've never thought of them come up and have a look and you explain, you've got the, the books about them and really you've enhanced so many people's lives through your interest in rings and I thank you very, very much for that. Well, I thank you, and you're part of the reason why I'm so interested in them, and you've participated. That's very nice of you to say so, but it's been a pleasure talking to you. For me too, Diana. Thank you so much. This has been a Les Enlumineurs podcast. I'm Kristen Ragnello editor and producer of the Les Enlumineurs podcast. Our current digital exhibition, The Experience of Pairings, A May Bouquet of Rings, is an exhibition of historic rings that's now on view. You can experience unexpected and delightful combinations of medieval and Renaissance rings alongside complementary flowers. In other programming, every Friday, keep an eye out for Les Enlumineurs' Friday Favorites, our newest online initiative highlighting favorite manuscripts, rings, and miniatures. These are candid, casual conversations with our experts, often recorded from the comfort of our own home offices. Thanks for listening. 